0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your, Your journey. journey. Your journey
1: starts here. Here. Thank you. Um, so I am introducing Elaine because she is both an old friend and a fellow writer. And I'll tell you some sort of standard things that you would be told about anyone who's uh, written a book and which would be, and I'm looking at the flap of copy for her um, very wonderful nonfiction book that you're all here for. Anyone who's read any of it will feel like it's very uh, much a book that speaks to the moment. Uh, so Elaine is a longtime journalist and writer. Her, her work has appeared in the Atlantic, Harper's, New York Times. And uh, she's also been a radio person, done all kinds of things through National Public Radio, Voice of America. And um, earlier in her, in her career, she had the honor of being a McDowell Colony Fellow and a Pushcart Prize Editor's Choice. Um, here in Baltimore, she's worked at Warfields, WJHU, and just, you know, been a, a magazine writer. I met uh, Elaine and uh, playing tennis, and uh, not that long thereafter, she began working on her first book, Fruits of Victory, the Women's Land Ar- Army of America in the Great War. Um, So when Elaine got this idea for this book it actually started off as a book about a woman named Mrs. Leslie who some of you will recognize as being in this book and eventually it uh, expanded into this much bigger project and in the course of this she ended up uh, being at the same literary agency as I am and also at the same publishing house, Viking Press so... um, this has been very fun. Elaine is also my swimming partner. <laughs> we are both devoted to um, the um, pool, aquatic arts. the aquatic arts. <laughs> um, we, we have swum with Michael Phelps. Um, I could say the locker room was never very clean, but the, the outdoor pool would open early in. This year is a first, it opened April 1st, and the water temperature was 60 degrees, but we were not there. (laughs) Anyway, so um, it's really been tremendous fun, I mean, Elaine is tremendous fun, but it's been very fun, you know, watching her um, work on this book and both having someone to gossip with about, you know, (laughs) our agents and our editors. Um, and then I have read only half the book, and if I were not myself so busy, I would just stay home for like the next day and do nothing but read it because it 's really a terrific read, and it 's just rollicking. you know you don 't really think of history often as being rollicking, but it is anyway, um, I realize that Elaine and I should be wearing white, and now that spring is here, I guess we can you know Al- Elaine will have to work on that part of her wardrobe, and I noticed someone is here with a sash. So um, anyway, so uh, I'm sure we're going to have a very entertaining evening because Elaine always puts on a a great talk. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, It's really thrilling for me to come home to Baltimore. Uh, As many of you know, I've been on the road for the last month, Uh, but to be here with friends and neighbors who've been so patient and comforting and supportive during the, the years when this book has been a born in. And uh, I wanna thank all of you because I couldn't have done it without, without your help and support. And thanks also to the Pratt, our city's great library, That gives such a wonderful uh, venue for authors of all stripes to introduce their books. And especially for we Baltimore writers, uh, it's really the mothership for us and gives us a very warm welcome. So thank you very much. So to answer, many of you who have asked over the last years, so what's with that book you're writing? (laughs) Um, Here it is. Uh, The answer is The Woman's Hour, and it is a great, and as uh, Jill said, rollicking, bare-knuckled political tale, and it's filled with colorful characters and plot twists and twists and turns. It features women protagonists, women as activists, as savvy politicians, not just historical footnotes. And it could be said that the suffrage movement was really the 19th century Me Too movement because it was an uprising of women standing up and speaking out and saying that they'd been mistreated and they were demanding change. It's a book about political power and political will. It's about racial and gender politics. It's about states' rights, the vote, and it's really about democracy and our ambivalent attitude towards democracy. It's the story of how American women's demand for the vote, which was once considered outrageous, radical, crazy, subversive, impossible, was slowly and methodically, at great cost, transformed into something considered inevitable. Well, almost inevitable. The fight for women's suffrage is really one of the defining civil rights struggles in our nation's history. And it cuts to the heart of what democracy means. Who gets to participate in our government? Who has a voice? When we say, we the people, who do we really mean? Do we mean everyone? The Woman's Hour chronicles the explosive climax of that struggle during one long, hot summer in Nashville, Tennessee, in 1920. And while most of this action takes place in Tennessee, Maryland plays a significant role in the drama. And I will just say at this point that our state is on the wrong side of history. <laughs> About that history, if you're like me, you've had only a very fuzzy idea Of how American women won, and that active verb is really important. They did not, they were not given the vote. We were not given the vote. We had to fight for it. We had to win it. And that kind of fuzzy idea goes something like this there's a bunch of women at a place called Seneca Falls, sometime in the horse and buggy days, and they're wearing hoop skirts and bonnets. It's very picturesque. Then fast forward, and the women politely ask for the vote, and maybe there's a few picket signs that are hoisted, and then men see the light, and they just magnanimously grant their mothers and wives and daughters the vote. It was the march of progress. It's just happened naturally, it's part of evolution. No, it was not. That is not how it happened. It required three generations of fearless activists working over seven decades to secure the vote for American women. And the culmination of that crusade, what we call the women's suffrage movement, came down to a fierce six-week battle staged in Tennessee. In the summer of of 1920, one last state was needed to ratify the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would give all women in every state, in every election, the right to vote. 35 states had ratified. 36, or three-quarters of the 48 states in the Union, were required for ratification. Tennessee could be the 36th. Here's this wonderful cartoon that came out at the time, and Um, The woman is saying, Samuel, it's that 36th button. (laughs) If the Tennessee legislature approved the amendment, it would become the law of the land. If the amendment failed in Tennessee, it could be delayed indefinitely, perhaps not enacted at all. The enfranchisement of half of the citizens of the nation was at stake, and it all came down to Tennessee. Tennessee. Now by 1920, the suffragists have been fighting for 72 years since that first outrageous demand was made by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and seconded by Frederick Douglass at Seneca Falls. Many of those attending that meeting thought that asking for the vote was a terrible idea. It was too radical, it would uh, expose them to ridicule, it was ridiculous, it was impossible. And in fact, uh, one of the other demands that was made at Seneca Falls was equal pay. So we know that hasn't happened yet. But Frederick Douglass stood up and he said, no, you must demand equality. You must demand it. It will never be given to you. He called himself a woman's rights man for all of his life. And he is truly one of the heroes of the book. The women we know as the early suffrage pioneers Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan Anthony, Lucretia Mott, Lucy Stone, were actually abolition workers before they were suffrage workers. That's where they cut their political teeth. The idea of women's rights and the right to vote being only one of those grows out of the whole theme of natural rights that, that propelled the, the abolition movement. So abolition and women's suffrage are, are really sibling uh, movements through the Civil War. And that, they they, they work together until there's a bitter break during Reconstruction, when the women were left out of the voting rights of the 14th and 15th Amendments. They were told the nation could not handle two great reforms at once. We have a limited attention span. And it was not the woman's hour, and that's where the title of my book comes from, and they would have to wait. It took years to heal this rift between the two movements, And cynical racism in the suffrage movement was really never truly resolved. The evolving women's suffrage movement nurtured activists, but it also nurtured feminist philosophers and orators and great politicians, including the extraordinary 50-year partnership of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan Anthony. I forged the thunderbolts and she hurled them, is the way Elizabeth described their working together. Elizabeth was fought and Susan was action. And that action included Susan Anthony voting in the 1972, pardon me, 1872 presidential election, testing the legal theory that as a citizen she inherently had the right to vote already and she just had to exercise it. I have been and gone and done it. Susan gleefully wrote to Elizabeth. She was soon arrested, put on trial, and convicted of illegal voting. And here's a a contemporary description of her. It's called The Woman Who Dared. And she went around speaking about this experience of being arrested. Is it a crime for a U.S. citizen to vote, she protested. And here's the transcript of her pretty outrageous trial, which is depicted in the book. So failure of this voting experiment, and 150 women around the country, including Sojourner Truth, actually voted in this 1872 election to test, give a, a legal test. Um, the failure led Anthony and uh, Stanton to write a constitutional amendment. They said it can't be done state by state. We need an overarching change of the law by a constitutional amendment. It was introduced into Congress in 1878, and it was stalled there for 40 years. Every year, suffragists would go up to Capitol Hill and uh, they'd testify. Whatever committee was holding hearings on the bill, And Elizabeth Stanton writes in her memoir that she, um, as she was giving testimony, the senator would be clipping his his fingernails, sharpening his pencils, eating his lunch, doing anything but listening. And she had to restrain herself from hurling her manuscript papers at his head. The amendment was voted down in committee or on the floor of the House and Senate 28 times. So, while it was stalled there, the suffragists went to work in the states, states which can confer um, suffrage on its citizens, while they tried to pry the amendment out of committee and Congress. So in the years following Seneca Falls, ten, pardon me, tens of thousands of dedicated suffragists waged more than 900 local, state, and national campaigns to win the ballot. They traveled hundreds of thousands of miles to do, as Susan Anthony called it, organize, educate, and agitate in tiny towns and big cities across the nation. And here you see them traveling. They had to change hearts and minds about women's role in society before they could change the law. They were truly the original she persisted. It was a stupendous feat of organization, without any of the travel or communication tools that we take for granted today. Um, When the movement began, passenger train travel was in its infancy. The telegraph had only recently been invented. There was no typewriter. There was no telephone. Even in 1920, radio was not yet in use. It would be later in the year. And as one young woman in my publisher's office said when she looked at the manuscript, I don't understand how they could do this without Facebook. (laughs) But they did. They held meetings, rallies, demonstrations, and they marched, which was not considered proper for women to do. They didn't wear pink pussy hats, but they did wear their marching uniforms, white dresses with yellow sashes. Now, sometimes they got a bit carried away with their marching uniforms. Let's see here. They (laughs) went a little overboard. Um, But here's a suffrage march in Baltimore in 1912. Baltimore was the headquarters of the Maryland Equal Suffrage League. There were leagues in most cities in the state. The Women's College of Baltimore, soon to be renamed Goucher College, would be, was the, uh, pardon me, it hosted a robust suffrage club. Mary Elizabeth Garrett, who we know is the founder of Bryn Maw, um, the Bryn Mawr School and funder of the Hopkins School of Medicine, if they would uh, uh, accept women medical students, that was the deal, uh, was also, you might expect, a champion of suffrage. She hosted the 1906 National Suffrage Convention here in Baltimore, where Susan Anthony spoke her famous failure is impossible speech. And it was her last public appearance. She died just several weeks after. But it was not easy being a suffragist in Maryland or anywhere else. They endured contempt and ridicule in their communities, their churches, in the press. Here are some images that they had to see. They were pelted with rotten eggs and spoiled vegetables. They were attacked by mobs of angry men and boys, denounced as radical radicals, perverts, traitors, anarchists, bad wives and mothers, even Bolsheviks. Here's some more. When women vote, and you can see that men might have to take care of the babies might have to sew. Here's another one. Election Day. Daddy has to watch the children while mom goes out to vote. They were derided as unattractive, unsexed, she-men. And the men who supported them were belittled as Mabels and Nancys. Guess which one's supposed to be the suffragist here? I think we (laughs) can... Again, who will, do we see a theme emerging here? <laughs> yes, clearly they were frightening. Nevertheless, the suffragists built sophisticated advocacy organizations. They learned to petition, draft legislation, lobby, fundraise, and campaign. But as they grew more frustrated with the slow pace of progress in the 20th century, Alice Paul's Women's Party, the more radical wing of the movement, they were not militant, they were never militant, um, also picketed the White House, which had never been done before. The silent sentinels stood with their picket signs at the gates of the White House in rain and snow, sleet and heat. And when Goucher students and faculty joined the college day picket line here they are on their way, Uh, in February 1917, just as America was preparing to enter the Great War, President Guth, president of Goucher, denounced their participation. So did the Baltimore Sun, which was a vigorously anti-suffrage newspaper right to the end. And Uh, An editorial in the Sun said, if Goucher is to be considered merely a nursery for militant suffragists, it will be apt to suffer in its expanding usefulness, and its expanding usefulness might be greatly checked. Not good for its reputation, he was saying. Alice Paul and her Women's Party refused to support the war effort. How can we be fighting a war to make the world safe for democracy, when half of our nation's citizens are not allowed to participate in that democracy. Democracy begins at home, she demanded. They burned the president's words at the gates of the White House. Here's a picture of that. And they even denounced the president as Kaiser Wilson. This was during wartime, and it was very controversial. Hundreds of women's party suffragists were arrested and served time in prison for their civil disobedience. They were held in the fetid Aquacon prison in Virginia in vermin-infested cells. They were physically abused. They were clubbed, tied to the wall, not allowed to read, write, or even communicate with each other. They communicated by singing. When they refused to eat, they were force-fed. Tubes rammed down their noses. Alice Paul was held in solitary confinement and to break her, doctors threatened to commit her to St. Elizabeth's Mental Asylum. When they were released, they toured the country in copies of their prison garments, made by a seamstress, um, around the country in what they called the prison special. And they went around talking about how they were treated demanding the right to vote. And here you see them, uh, they went around the country and in cities and towns and brought the, the word of what they had endured to the nation and it really made a difference. As war came to a close, suffragists pushed hard on Congress to pass the federal amendment which had been there for 40 years. Finally, in June of 1919, the 19th amendment one approval from both houses of Congress, went to the states for ratification. A year later, when my book takes place in the summer of 1920, the amendment was on the cusp of victory or possibly defeat. No one knew. Because Tennessee was a dangerous place to stage this definitive battle for women's suffrage. Nearly all the other southern states had already rejected it and for very blatant racist reasons. They did not want black women to vote. That was it. States rights also enters into it. And this included Maryland. The Maryland legislature refused to ratify the 19th Amendment, rejecting it in February of 1920. But that wasn't all. Maryland also sent ambassadors to other southern states to convince them to reject the amendment So the Sufs faced an uphill battle in Tennessee, but they had no choice. Nine states had rejected. The governors of three more were refusing to consider it. The antis were challenging the legality of several states who had already ratified. Tennessee was the last best chance. So all the forces for and against women's suffrage gathered in Nashville. The campaign generals arrived. National suffrage leader, Carrie Chapman Catt, who is the protege of Susan B. Anthony, who groomed her for leadership. She's called the chief, and she comes down from headquarters in New York to take command of uh, the strategy for uh, the Nashville fight. Then there's young Sue Shelton White, who is a native Tennessee daughter, uh, who comes to lead the ratification fight for the rival suffrage organization, the Women's Party. And she has to confront both her state's reluctance uh, to uh, allow justice for its women and also has to face her former comrades uh, in the suffrage movement that she has left uh, for for the more radical part. And then there's Josephine Pearson, the leader of the Tennessee anti-suffragist who promised in a heartbreaking scene, promises her dying mother that she would fight the scourge of women's suffrage if it ever reached Tennessee. She arrived from the southern mountains of Tennessee to defend her home state from what she calls the feminist peril. They're joined there by more than 1,000 women and men from around the country and from around the state. Suffragists, anti-suffragists, governors and senators, corporate lobbyists, journalists, and nervous legislators all entering the fray. And Marylanders come. Maryland made a concerted effort to kill ratification in Nashville. Baltimore attorney William Marbury, whose name is around town in many ways, led the effort to defeat the amendment Uh, when it was in the Maryland legislature, and he warned Tennessee Governor Albert Roberts, wrote to him and said, it seems monstrous to us here in Maryland, especially those of us who are Democrats, that the legislature of Tennessee should vote to ratify amendment which could take away for us the right to determine this question for ourselves. Adoption of the amendment would harm Marylanders even more seriously than Tennesseans, he cautioned, adding 60 to 70,000 Negro women voters to the electorate. And while the Negro women would be eager to exercise their new franchise on election day, white women would be reluctant to go to the polls, according to Marbury, due to the conditions which would exist in the state, meaning white women would not want to vote at a polling place where black women were also present. The Maryland Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage, which boasted some distinguished Maryland names like Garrett and Legg and Gilman, um, wrote a letter to uh, the legislature, and to the Tennessee legislature, and said, Our liberties are threatened in spite of Maryland having already rejected the 19th Amendment, and we ask you to protect us from outside interference by refusing to ratify this pernicious amendment, the question of the women's suffrage amendment has become a great moral issue. You are asked to decide whether Tennessee will cease to be a state in the real sense or become a, just a geographical expression whose people will be dictated by overlords in Washington. We ask you to make the liberties of your sister states secure by rejecting this amendment. We'd hear those same states' rights arguments again in the civil rights clashes of the 1960s, and we still hear them today when it comes to issues of voting rights. Maryland State Senator George Arnold Frick and Delegate Willis Jones arrived in Nashville and sat with the anti-suffrage legislators in the house chambers. They brought with them a memorial from the Maryland legislature urging their brothers in Tennessee to follow their lead and reject the amendment. There were powerful forces working against ratification in Tennessee. Political, corporate, and ideological foes with their own reasons for opposing suffrage. Politicians and political parties who feared this unpredictable new voting block. No one knew how women were going to vote. Clergymen who believed that women voting went against the will of God because he made, or she made, um, Eve to be subservient to Adam. And so women had no right to ask for the vote. Cardinal Gibbons here in Maryland was a very strong anti-suffragist corporations were against the amendment believing that they would be bad for that women voting would be bad for business textile manufacturers were afraid that women voters might want to abolish child labor and they depended on child labor it was cheap and that's how their mills were run the railroad industry which was prominent both here in maryland and in tennessee also opposed women voters It would upset the political status quo. They'd already bought off the legislatures. They didn't want to have to do it again. And then the liquor industry feared that women voters would insist, even though prohibition was already in effect, they would insist on enforcement. And they were hoping that prohibition would not be enforced. They feared that if women were able to vote, that they would insist on that enforcement. The liquor lobby was so frightened that they sponsored a speakeasy Though there is prohibition uh, on the eighth floor of the hermitage hotel, and it came to be known as the Jack Daniels suite. <laughs> it dispensed liquor morning, noon, and night, free of charge to any legislature legislator who could warble up there and uh, they were they went through the the hotel and, and through the chambers dead drunk as long as they, and they were uh, tried to be they were convinced to uh, oppose ratification for the sake of the liquor industry, if they could still stand up. But the most passionate foes of the 19th Amendment turned out to be women. Yes, that women might oppose their own sisters enfranchisement was really shocking to me. Uh, Some of these antis, as they were called, or antis, were sophisticated and well-educated women, actually, Um, Josephine Pearson is a college dean and some will surprise you the anti-suffragists I found one of them is the muckraking journalist Ida Tarbell. she's a strong anti-suffragist also Eleanor Roosevelt she's not an anti-suffragist but she is not a suffrage supporter at this time Uh, yes I know and you'll see her evolution as you read the book but she did not support Suffrage, even though her husband was running for the vice presidency in 1920. Um, Some of these women argued that in entering the political arena, arena, women would actually lose some of their uh, moral superiority and influence over affairs. That soft suasion that they could use uh, if they entered politics, they would lose that. Um, But others were simply social and religious and cultural conservatives who feared that suffrage would bring about a profound and unhealthy shift in gender roles. It would endanger the American home and bring about the moral collapse of the nation. That was their term. It would alter private life, not just public life. And that's what made it so dangerous for them. And this is an important reminder that the suffrage movement, the debate over women's suffrage, was never just a political issue. It was really a cultural and social, and for some, a moral issue. And in that way, it's a precursor to what we call the culture wars. It's much more complicated. It's much more emotionally um, entangled with other issues. So all sides confront each other in Nashville, and it gets wild. There's bribes, and booze and propaganda, and blackmail, conspiracies, kidnappings and fistfights. there's betrayal and courage the newspapers call it suffrage Armageddon and the outcome remains in doubt until the very last moment and I won't spoil it for you but it does come down to a single vote of conscience from the youngest member of the legislature who receives a letter from his mother but Maryland did not accept the 19th Amendment, even after its ratification. We think of ourselves as a progressive state. William Marbury and Maryland Judge Oscar Lesser fought the constitutionality of the amendment in court, arguing on the grounds of states' rights. The case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, where Maryland's arguments were finally rejected in a decision written by Justice Louis Brandeis in 1922. Maryland women could indeed vote, but the Maryland legislature only officially ratified the 19th amendment in 1958. (laughs) Now all this took place almost a century ago, but I think you'll find The Woman's Hour is a book of history with surprising, perhaps even unnerving modern themes. It helps explain where we've been, and where we are today. It deals with topics that dominate our headlines right now. Voting rights and voter suppression, women's rights, inequality, dark money in politics, the role of religion in public policy, and racism. Because the history of suffrage in America is inevitably a story about race. In Nashville... There are cries of white supremacy. Oh, wait a second, I forgot this. Pardon me, I forgot one of my favorite um, uh, illustrations. This is America When Feminized. And this is an anti-suffrage brochure that shows the hen leaving the nest and uh, saying, sit on them yourself, old man. I'm My country calls. And one of the captions underneath says, a vote for the federal amendment is a vote for organized female nagging forever. (laughs) One of the great ones. I'm sorry, so here we go. (laughs) Uh, In Nashville, there are cries of white supremacy and states' rights. The Ku Klux Klan is invoked as a dog whistle. And the Confederate flag is waved in defiance. Here's a picture of the anti suffragist that's um, Josephine Pearson on your right with a Civil War veteran. There are many symbols here including that of Nathan Bedford Forrest. There's a banner of his uh, who is the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, this is a very carefully uh, constructed symbolic photo that was distributed to their uh, supporters. And we've certainly been hearing echoes of all this recently. And oh, did I mention the whole story unfurls during a bitter presidential campaign of 1920 where the Republican can- the, the campaign slogan for the Republican candidate who is a notorious womanizer and is being blackmailed by one of his mistresses and has paid hush money to keep her silent (laughs) is America First, Warren G. Harding. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's true. I submitted the manuscript for this book after writing it for a long time, which many of you know. The day before Election Day, 2016. Yeah. I pushed the send button, which is how you send manuscripts in these days and it flew through the ether to the desk of my editor who replied hurrah great timing (laughs) well it was more timely than we could have anticipated by the next evening the national landscape as you know had changed and in the months that have followed the psyche of the nation has changed And the story I wrote of the suffragists' long fight for democracy and their final battle in Nashville has taken on layers of meaning I could not have anticipated. This story of ordinary women, grassroots activists, taking to the streets and demanding change assumes new resonance as millions of women and men and young students join marches to protest government policies today and this tale of women standing up and demanding their voices be heard and their complaints be taken seriously, echoes loudly as women rise up to say, Me Too, and Time's Up. And this history of citizens fighting for their rights enters a new dimension as rights they assumed were secure. Voting rights, citizenship rights, press freedom, women's rights appear to be endangered once again. On election day 2016, having handed in the manuscript, um, I was out in the field knocking on doors, actually with Jill Jones, and I learned a powerful lesson about the legacy of the suffragists I had just written a book about. On that election day, thousands of women around the country were casting their votes. As you might remember, there was a woman running for the presidency, And then they were making pilgrimages to the graves of the suffragists who I'd just written about who'd won that vote for them. They were placing flowers and thank you notes and their I-voted stickers on the graves of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Carrie Catt in New York City, Alice Paul in New Jersey, and in Rochester, New York, where Susan B. Anthony is buried. More than 10,000 men, women, and children visited her grave that day to thank her for winning the vote for them. And here's a picture of her grave on that day. There are important lessons to be learned from the fight for women's suffrage. That social change is slow and political change is hard. That the struggle to expand our democracy is ongoing. It's not through. That reform movements are imperfect. The story of the women's suffrage movement is both inspiring and a cautionary tale. It's complicated. It's messy. There are moral compromises made for success. The suffragists are willing to leave their black sisters behind. And I hope the story that I tell in the women's hour will teach a new generation of activists that protest is patriotic and necessary, but it must be followed up by well designed and sustained political strategies. The suffragists did not just march and picket. They debated, they lobbied, and they campaigned. The vote is a prayer, as Carrie Catt described it. The vote is power, and today our job is to protect that vote for all citizens. And it's our sacred duty to use that vote to both expand and improve our democracy. That's what the suffragists taught me, and I hope you'll enjoy reading about them. Thank you. (laughs) Questions. Questions. Anybody got a question? Uh, quite a few were, not all. Uh, there were about 26 nations that had given their uh, women the vote by the time we did in 1920. Um, uh, but France didn't, Italy didn't. Great Britain had just, they just celebrated their centennial uh, in February. Uh, so it was 1918. But only certain women could, could uh, vote in Great Britain. It's a class society, so they did it a little differently. Had to be over 20, 30 years old. Uh, and had to be a uh, landowner. And part of that is uh, that they lost a million men in the war, mm-hmm. and they thought that giving women at 21 the vote would have made women a ma- majority and they couldn't have that. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why it's different, it's 19- like 1928 that uh, all women get the vote in Great Britain. So, as you were saying- Mm-hmm. How many, what yeah. did it, it was disappointing to the suffragists. Um, I think it <clears throat> turns out to be about uh, 30% of the eligible women. There <clears throat> are 27 million women eligible, and about 10 million vote. Okay. 8 to 10. <clears throat> and do we know did they vote primarily for party? Or- Yes, they did. <laughs> they voted for Harding. We have precedent for that. Um, now, I should say also that um, the Republicans were better on suffrage uh, than the Democrats. And so some of that is rewarding, and some of that is not thinking. Um, but yes, they do, they bring in Harding. Yes. So by the time 1920 like came, did, yes. did women have voted in some states? Yes, yes, they have. Um, I think there are about ten states that have full suffrage at this time, including New York, which just celebrated its centennial, and that was by referendum. Remember, only men could decide whether women deserve the vote. So whether it was by a popular referendum, as it was in New York and California and a few other states, or by legislative action, it's only men who are deciding. And there are many, many failed um, uh, referenda that go on for 40 years. But yes, there are... So there's about um, 7 or 10 million women who can vote for president already. Even in Tennessee, they had been given as a sort of sop to keep them quiet... Um, presidential suffrage so not only it, it, you could have limit, what was called limited suffrage so you, a, a legislature could say okay you c- women can vote in city elections but not for your governor not for your congressmen not for your state representatives they could um, parse it so that women would not be able to participate in any elections that had power or patronage So um, that was something they did to try to pacify women. Yes? In the South, did they have all these um, tricks to stop women from voting the way they did for blacks? Um, Once it was passed? Once it was passed, white women could vote. um, Black women could not. And one of the the shameful things is the suffragists, for the most part, not completely, do not stand up and say this is wrong. Uh, So all the, the... by this time, black men have been disenfranchised in the southern states through poll tax or um, ridiculous uh, literacy requirements um, or physical intimidation. And um, they then use that on the women, too. So in 1920, there actually are, are riots on Election Day, which I describe in the book. Yes? <laughs> um, there was a sense of justice that there that that this was time that half of the citizens had no voice, um, and that slowly, slowly got drummed into the American populace. It took a long time. They were stunned by the war, uh, also, and by some of the. Um, uh, tactics used by Alice Paul made them you know, really kind of sit up and, and, and think um, also what women did in World War I they took on jobs they had never uh, taken on before so all of these began to penetrate the psyche and uh, there was the sense that the time had come but it was a near thing even in um, uh, legislatures that accepted uh, the 19th amendment sometimes it was by a very thin margin it was it was defeated in Delaware also, um, which was not expected. So, it was a near thing. And some of uh, you'll find Carrie Cat thinking to herself, "Is America really ready? You know, is is it truly ready?" And I think we can still ask that question. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. I'm about halfway through, so. <laughs> but I. I'm- Inside the heads of some people, presumably because they wrote lots of memoirs. And so I was curious about that whole research aspect of mm-hmm. the work that you did, because clearly you read an awful lot. Yeah, I I'm did. I was wondering how that. And process. I could not make it up. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, I could not make also it up. Uh, yes, they did write things. And one of the wonderful, um there, there are great archival resources, some of them in Tennessee. At uh, the Tennessee State Archives, collected all the little minutia during the campaign, and you know the memos with the scrawls on it. Um, but they also, at the, in the Library of Congress, you can find the Women's Party papers, where you can see their daily communication, their notes back and forth. And you have to sort through many, many, many uh, to get to the ones you need. But you you can see their letters that they write back to headquarters, and and. The, instructions they're given and the despair that they feel. Uh, so all of that does come. And some do write some mem- memoirs. Uh, not enough, but there are some. And, and some, their personal papers are gone. Uh, but I was really lucky to be able to find there's, there's um, a, a woman in uh, Cambridge, one, one of the suffragists, the young suffragists who are in Tennessee, um, her granddaughter inherited her papers and donated it to the Schlesinger Library uh, just as I was doing my research. And they were unprocessed. But I, um, I was able to get in touch with the granddaughter. She guided me through the papers. And those were, was, were really great. So sometimes you, you find those, those kind of gems. A real gift. Yes, Elaine. Oh, <laughs> I, um, I think it was it was Women's History Month. And, no, there was no historical uh, resonance there. It's Women's History Month, and uh, I was near International Women's Day, and my publisher had a free date, I think. So that was <laughs> that was when it was chosen. So no, there's no there's no real historical meaning to the uh, March sixth. I think it was. Yeah. Yes, there are. There are real champions, and you'll meet some of them here, Uh, but there are in Congress all through. They're really brave men. There's a description of uh, when the 19th Amendment is being voted on. uh, I believe it's in the House, and there are men who are uh, very ill and get wheeled in on a gurney because they're not going to miss the vote. There's one guy who has a, a broken shoulder and refuses anesthesia, even though he's in great pain because he doesn't want to be dopey during the vote. So, I mean, there, there are dramatic moments like that. There's a, a man in uh, West Virginia who comes uh, barreling back from California to be able to break a tie in that in that legislature. Uh, but there there are men uh, who are, are truly, truly uh, devoted to the idea of equality of women's equality and and that runs all through from the man who first um, uh, introduces uh, the amendment in the House and the Senate uh, to right to to the end and in Tennessee, there are some wonderful characters there's a a young Jewish um, uh, legislator from Memphis who is brought up has, Parents bring him here from Poland, he's brought up uh, to believe in the American dream, and he says, this is wrong, this is just wrong, this is not how America should work. And he becomes the floor leader for the suffragists in the House in Tennessee, and and kind of pilots it through. So yes, there are wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, male champions. Pure racism. You know, are just yeah, right now that, like, it's it's pure racism. You read their, you know, their now? Yeah, and and there are you know there are there are southern women who are racists. So, um, there are northern women who are racist, um, and it's it's very prevalent there, and it's prevalent as we know today. But it was used, unfortunately, when the one of the real. Um, discoveries for me because i didn't realize that i'm not a suffrage historian but i um, realized how much race penetrates the movement from the beginning to the end um because it comes out of abolitionism and one of the reasons that the um southern anti-suffragists call they always refer to the 19th amendment as the susan b anthony amendment Uh, it's not to to um uh glorify her. It's to remind everyone that she was an abolitionist. That if you vote for this amendment for women, you're really voting for something that came out of the abolition movement. It, within the suffrage? Because they want suffrage for white women. That That is... Yeah, yeah. Yes. And um, they, there's, there's even, uh, at some points in the movement, uh, resistant to having immigrant women have the vote because they're not as educated. There's a, a sense that they should have an education requirement. Um, and it's simply, um, again, I think someone like Carrie Capp believes that she would like all women to vote, but if only, again, it's a question of, if, it, if we have to choose, just as with the 14th and the 15th amendment, there had to be a choice, um, then white women should get the book. It's it's hard to, to justify, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't presume to do it at all. But that's what happened. Any others? Thank you. Thank. you.